Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. We thank you for getting us up out of bed, getting us here to church safely, to worship you and glorify you. Pray, Lord, that you would just speak to our hearts today. Encourage us. May your joy be our strength, Lord. Renew the joy of our salvation, Lord. Help us to give thanks in all things. Lord, we thank you for this time of season where Christ is proclaimed everywhere, whether people know it or not. The word Christmas, Lord, Christ, it's, it's everywhere, Lord. And so we just thank you that you are proclaiming your name through creation, Lord, through the world and through us, your church, your hands and feet. Pray that you would use us mightily for your glory. Use us in our homes, Lord. Use us at our jobs, Lord. Use us in the church and use us in this world to shine as bright lights and point people ultimately to Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And so, Lord, strengthen us, empower us through your Holy Spirit to do this, Lord, and uh, just help us always to look to you. May you increase, may we decrease, Lord. And so be with us this morning. May we glorify you. Bless this message, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's teaching is Who Are You Serving? Who Are You Serving? I mentioned some time ago that it's really hard for me to read long books. If you give me a book that's like 400 pages or more, I probably won't even open it. It's just, uh, it just scares me, right? And I mentioned that, I don't know how long ago, and someone actually gave me a book after church. They didn't know I was going to say that. And it was like this theological book. It was like four or 500 pages. And she's like, I don't know if you're going to read this, but it's, it's a really good theological book. And I think I opened it halfway and read a couple, like one chapter and haven't got back to it. And so even Leah last year bought me this like 1600 page theo- theological book and it's something I told her I wanted and I've, I haven't even really cracked it open yet. So they look good in the office, they look good on the shelf, but I- I'm working at it. Give me a 50 page book, a 100 page book, and I, it's not even technically a book, right? Like a little, and I can get through that pretty quick. That's how my mind works. And even in college, if they handed me a test and it was like one of those big tests with a lot of paper, a lot of questions, I would, right when I got it, I'd go like halfway through or I'd go to the end and fill that out. Somehow that made it seem less daunting to me. So anyway, that's how my mind works. Perhaps you guys are good readers and can get through long books and go figure, here's the Bible. Like how many pages? 1,700 pages. But thankfully the Lord's broke it up into books, separate books, right? 66 books, some of them longer than others, but I think that's why I've gravitated towards the epistles. These these letters to the churches, they're typically shorter, a couple chapters, five chapters, six chapters, or like the book of Colossians that we've been looking through, uh, four chapters. I can work with four chapters, and it's packed with theology, packed with practical, useful, helpful tools for us in our everyday life. I was looking up how many self-help books come out every year? And in the United States, there's 15,000 self-help books that are published every year. 15,000. People are yearning for purpose. They're learning for, they're yearning for hope and direction. And they're yearning for all these things. They, they need help. And so they're looking, and they need fulfillment, they're looking to self-help. And I was looking up some of the titles of these books, The Power of Now or The Power of positive thinking and the 48 laws of this or 48 laws of attraction and the the power of this and I'm like it's interesting how a lot of the top sellers have the word power in them need the for us it's the holy spirit power that we need it's the power of god his inspired word that we need more of in our lives and people feel that void in their heart so they turn to these self help books but we have the word of god right here Hopefully it's in front of you today. It's on your phone and hopefully it's in your heart. This is the guidance that we need above all else. So as I mentioned, Colossians, four chapters. We're going to be back in Colossians today. I've been praying through the book of Colossians, meditating on the book of Colossians. You know, when I'm lacking knowledge, when I'm lacking understanding in life, which happens a lot, I pray Colossians 1.9. Colossians 1.9, that the Lord would fill me with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know, when I'm lacking strength, if you're lacking strength in life, you need to be strengthened in your faith, a good one to meditate on is Colossians 
that the Lord would strengthen you with all power according to his glorious might. Do you get distracted easily? Do you get anxious? Do you get overly focused on the here and now, the world? Then you need Colossians 4 too. Set your minds on things above, not on things of this world. Meditate on that. Think about that. Pray that. Lord, help me to set my mind on you, to meditate on you, to think of whatever's true, whatever's lovely, whatever's good, whatever's pure. As Paul mentions in Philippians, meditate on these things and the God of peace will be with you. And he'll give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. Be overly focused on the things of this world. Be distracted with the things of this world. And there comes anxiety. There comes worry. There comes panic. There comes I'm worrying about the future. Jesus said, do not be anxious for tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So when I wake up, Lord, I I want your thoughts today. I want to set my mind on you. I don't want to be anxious about tomorrow when I have today right now that's right in front of me that I need your grace to get me through. So it's very practical. When you're lacking peace, go to Colossians 3.15 and say, Lord, May your peace rule in my heart. Pray that to the Lord, that he would give you his peace and that it would rule inside of you, in your heart. If you're feeling empty, if you're feeling dry, lacking joy, Colossians 3.16. Lord, may your word richly dwell within me. Lord, I want to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I want to sing with thankfulness in my heart to you. Lord, help me. Very practical. All the help is right here. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. He says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became a joy to me, the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. You constantly want to feed on God's word. At times you might be appetizing something else. We need to reorient our minds and our hearts back to God's word and say, I need, I know I need more of this word. I was thinking of, when I was putting this together, the prophet Elijah, I think it was Elijah, he went to Naaman and he said, go, Naaman was a leper and long story short, he said, go dip in the river seven times, God's going to heal you. And he's like, I came all the way over here for that. I, I thought you were going to do something else, rub some hoil, holy oil on me or do some some whatever. Sev- go dip in the water, bob up and down seven times. That's gonna. And he's like, I'm not doing that. And I think it was his servant girl. She's like, or someone told him, rebuked him. Like, I think just listen to the prophet, okay? I, the word is that he, when he says he's going to heal through the power of God, it's going to work. Just go do it. And he does it. And then he's healed. And I just thought that's how it is for some of us. I think that is the human nature. God says, meditate on my word. God says, pray. God says, this is the solution. And we go, but I'm going to try this. And I think that's why there's so many self-help books and so many other things. Because it's like, it's got to be this over here, or this over here, or this. And he's like, "It's, it's right here. It's right in front of you. Eat my word. Meditate on my word. Pray in my word. And I'll give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. It will guard your heart and minds in Christ. So the goal for today is to finish up Colossians chapter 3 into Colossians chapter 4 verse 1, which I don't know. I think they should have put that, the person, whoever he was, I don't remember his name. You know, the chapters and the verses aren't in the original scriptures, but most of the time the person, I think it was two different people, one did the chapters, one did the verses, they do a pretty good job. But chapter 4 verse 1 seems to be included at the end there in this treatise on wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, master, right there in chapter 4, verse 1. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Maybe one or two messages coming in chapter 4, and then as Christmas approaches, we're going to focus more on Christ and what he's done for us. So let's go ahead and read Colossians three, seventeen to chapter 4, verse 1. Give us a little bit of context about what we're going to be discussing today. Colossians 3:17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them. 
children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. If you notice in verse 22, he he says, Slaves in all things, obey your masters. In all things. It's the same phrase found in verse 20 when Paul addresses children. Children, obey your parents in all things. When you look at Ephesians 5.24, in the similar passage addressing wives, he says, be subject to your husbands in all things, in everything. And it's just implied that husbands are to love their wives in all things. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He loves the church in the midst of, of her sin while we were yet sinners Christ died for us Christ loved us Christ pursued us so in all things we're always looking for loopholes we're always looking for a way out do I really have to submit in this area do I really have to you know if you're a child do I really have to listen to my parent in this if you're if you're a wife do I really have to submit in this if you're a husband do I really have to submit Lord in this area in that area and he's like in all things Now, of course, if a parent asks a child to disobey the Lord or a husband with his wife, and she's not submitting if he's telling her to go against her conscience before the Lord or against God's word. But other than that, in everything, in all things we see, we need to have that humble heart before the Lord. So it's not a huge book for the wives. Wives, here's 50 things. Here's a hundred things. Here's a thousand things you need to do in the marriage. Husbands, here's a thousand rules for you in the marriage. Children, no, it's just very basic. Children, obey your parents. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. The longest treatise, if you will, that we have here is to the slaves. Verse 22, 23, 24, 25. He seems to elaborate with the slaves, and perhaps that's because they were enduring harsh conditions, perhaps that's also because it has application to each of us in our lives. I'm not really going to cover verse 20, 21 today. I'm mostly going to focus on the master and slave relation and kind of unpack that a little bit and how it applies to us today. There's not If we had a bunch of children in the fellowship listening, maybe I'd focus more on verse 20, children obey your parents. I tell my son that 10 times every day. You need to obey us. It's not working lately. Lee and I actually were up late last night. We're like, we need to think of a game plan for our son, Leland. He's a great kid. I said, honey, when he's busy, when he's active, the other day he was out throwing snowballs for like five hours and messing around with kids in the front yard. And he comes in, he, he skipped lunch, he's having fun. But the moment he comes inside and there's not something for him to do, it's just like, it's the end of the world. He gets all crazy. He gets all, and we're like, okay, how how do we deal with this? All right. And so we all have those challenges, at least those who have children still in the home. May the Lord help us with that. And then fathers, the Greek word there for fathers in verse 21, it's actually used in the book of Hebrews as parents. So some commentators think it's, he's addressing both fathers and mothers, but the translation in English has it. Fathers do not exasperate your children. So obviously we don't want to drive our kids to anger. If you look back at verse 14, put on love, that's the perfect bond of unity. That's a constant prayer of mine and Leah's. Help us to love each other more. Help us to love our kids more. Help us to be patient, kind. That's how love is described in 1 Corinthians 13. Patient, kind, long-suffering, does not keep record of wrongs and so forth. Lord, help me to love my kids. That will bond us together in unity. So as I mentioned, verses 
22 and following is basically what I'm going to be focusing on today, that master-slave dynamic. Some people read a passage like this, and after reading verse 18 and verse 22 and chapter 4, verse 1, they don't go much further than that, especially if they're not familiar with Christianity. They'll just say, wait, the Bible condones slavery, master and slave. The Bible encourages women to submit. So if they claim to be a Christian, they might read something like this and then deconstruct from the faith or mock Christianity or say, how could I follow a God? I'm not even going to look more into Christ because I can't get past this because I know slavery is wrong and slavery is in your Bible, so therefore I'm throwing out the Bible. You ever heard something like that? Ever gone online or read a book or talked to someone who has that mentality? So I want to kind of address that a little bit. So the first thing is, the same Paul who's addressing masters and slaves here, he's the same Paul who wrote in Colossians 3.11, just a little earlier, there's no distinction. And he gives this list between Greeks and Jews and slaves and free, barbarian, Scythian. There's no distinction. You're all on equal footing. You're all one in Jesus Christ. That's a revolutionary teaching. To say upper class, lower class, Scythian, barbarian, free, slave, master. You guys are all on the same playing field. You think that there's like a caste system going on here and one's less than the other or God has favoritism over this or that. No, no, you're all equal. You're all one in Jesus Christ. The same Paul that says wives submit to your husbands is the same Paul in Galatians 3.28 that says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Once again, you're on equal footing. You're not less than. You're a co-heir. You're equally human, equally saved, co-equal, co-laborer with Christ. This was a revolutionary teaching. This was unheard of at the time the New Testament was written. Women's testimony had no authority in the court of law. Women were considered less than, doormats, whatever you want to call it, property. Paul says, no, you are elevated. You are equal status. You are co-heirs with your husbands, co-equals before Christ. The gospel message changes societies from the inside out. So that's Paul's main concern, preaching Christ, preaching Jesus crucified, exalting Christ, getting people to have a mind change, a heart change, to repent, turn to Jesus, and then that eventually is what turns the world upside down. That's what turned the Roman Empire upside down, the Christian ethic, the Christian morality, Christian theology. That's what upended Rome. So slaves and masters, this is the question many people have. Why doesn't Paul speak against slavery? Here he has the chance. He's got masters and slaves. Why doesn't he just go directly for it? This is wrong. This is evil. Masters, let them go. Masters, you're in sin. You need to repent and turn from this and then go from there. Instead, he says, masters, you have a master in heaven. That seems to imply that these masters are Christians. He's addressing them as part of the fellowship. Masters, you have a master in heaven, so treat your slaves with fairness and with justice. So we have, we got to think this through, right? Is this slave-master relation and the slavery that went on in the Roman Empire, is it the same as the slavery that goes on today in the world? There's 50 million slaves in the world today. If you Look up any estimates online. Is this the same as the slavery that took place from 1600 to 1800s and beyond with the African slave trade where people were taken against their will from Africa, sold into slavery in Europe and Britain and America? Is this the same thing that Paul is addressing here in the book of Colossians and Ephesians and Peter addresses in First? Peter. That's what I want to talk about. So obviously the slave trade that we're all familiar with that we read in history books and we know all about is a wicked abomination. Exodus 21:16 tells us whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. 
People that steal other people, people that kidnap in the Old Testament, they were put to death, death penalty. That would have eradicated the slave trade very quickly. All the people going there, taking these future slaves, put to death. This is also repeated in Deuteronomy 24-7. And then the New Testament also repeats it in 1 Timothy 1-10. It includes kidnappers or man-stealers in the same list as liars and murderers and the profane who are under the wrath of God. I want to give you five quick points regarding the slavery being addressed right here in the book of Colossians. Five points to keep in mind regarding how the slavery that Paul's addressing differs from maybe the picture of slavery that you have in mind, the modern-day slavery. And I refer to an article titled, Why Doesn't Paul Speak Against Slavery? by Luke Simmons. It was pretty helpful in putting this together. Point number one, racial factors played no role in the slavery of Paul's day. Roman slaves were virtually every race of people. Many of them were prisoners of war. Some sold themselves into slavery because of debt. So while the slave trade that went on in our country, in Britain and elsewhere, was almost solely race-based for the most part, this was not. It played no role. Number two, many slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetimes. They were released by the time they were 30 years old. So many slaves were being released that in the first century that Caesar Augustus actually declared 30 years of age to be the minimum age for emancipation. I think one article I read said that some 500,000 slaves were released over a certain amount of time. Point number three. Many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. Slaves were doctors, they were teachers, they were writers, they were accountants, they were agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, sea captains. They weren't just the lower class, so to speak, of the caste system, although they were viewed that way as slaves. They had specialized trades, many of which today would earn a lot of money, six-figure plus positions. Point number four, many slaves received education and training, as I just mentioned, in specialized trades. The Roman slaves were paid a wage called a peculium, which they could save up to buy themselves freedom. I think some of the masters thought took advantage of this, and it caused the slaves to work harder because they said, I'll pay you, and this will one day grant your freedom. So it was kind of a win-win. They felt like they could get better output and promise them freedom after a certain point. Number five, freed slaves often became Roman citizens and developed a client relationship to their former masters. It's been said that many times the former slave became wealthier than his patron. So perhaps you knew some of that. Perhaps you didn't know any of that. Is that a justification? Is that me saying, this is a great thing, and that's my point? No, it's not my point. My point is that we need to have a historical background about what we're reading rather than bring our preconceptions and what we think of as the master-slave relationship and then import that into the text. We want to know the context of what Paul is addressing here in first-century Rome. So it's good to remember that the Apostle Paul was not a social, political reformer. That was not what Christ sent him to do, to speak out to Nero. To you know, when you read through the, the New Testament letters, they're not filled with things addressed to the government, or the government's doing this, or Nero's doing this. They're addressed to Christians. They're addressed to how Paul wants to win the world for Jesus Christ. And he says over and over again, this is why I was sent, to preach the gospel, to preach the good news. I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2, gospel proclamation, gospel obedience, gospel living. That's what Paul was after. And he was laser focused on his mission. He didn't want to get sidetracked. He wanted to stay focused 
And with that, when you're preaching the gospel, when you're preaching Christ crucified and people's minds and their hearts change and their behavior changes and it starts within the family and then in the church and then that percolates into society and that's what overturned this type of institution, slavery and many other things in the Roman Empire, turned the world upside down. That was Paul's point of attack. Magnify Jesus Christ in all things, in all places, at all times. So that's what we need to remember. That's Colossians 3 and 4. So we have this list. Wives and children and husbands and fathers, slaves, masters. This is how you are to act. These are commands for you. This is how you are to serve. If you look back at Colossians chapter 1, I want to just read the prayer again with you. Paul's prayer for the Colossian church, Paul's prayer for us, and a prayer that should be all of ours, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, because I think Colossians 3 is a practical fulfillment of Colossians 1, 9 through 12. Paul's saying, this is my prayer in chapter 3. This is how you fulfill my prayer back in chapter 1. Colossians 1, 9, Paul says this, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So if you say, how do I walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? How do I please him in all respects? How do I bear fruit? Paul, I want to I fulfill your prayer here. And this should be a prayer for all of us. This prayer I've been meditating on throughout the week. I think Leah even quoted it in her prayer earlier. She already had it memorized. Awanas and whatnot growing up in the church. And she had great parents who were teaching her. Memorize the word. I think she was 10 years old. And even Michaela, back at Blessed Hope See Me, they got up and shared scripture. I think a psalm. Was it a psalm you did as well? Psalm 39? Okay. Psalm 139. So 10 years old, she's having these verses memorized. Now later in life, as she's growing in the Lord, they're coming back to her. And I'm like jealous because I'm trying to memorize Colossians 1, 9 through 12. And I'm struggling. And she had it memorized for some time now it's good to have this as a prayer you say i don't know how to pray sometimes it's okay to steal prayers okay it's okay to steal prayers from paul and jeremiah and others and use them in your own life so i pray lord i want to walk in a manner in a manner worthy of the calling i want to please you i want to bear fruit lord i want to be strengthened by you and so how do i do that well chapter three this is how you do it wife's This is what you do. Husbands, this is how you bear fruit. This is how you please God. This is how you walk in a manner worthy. And children and slaves and masters and so forth. That's how we fulfill the prayer. It's not some vague thing or something where I have to like wait for a feeling or a dream or anything like that. You want to please the Lord. He tells you how. Verse 22. So we're talking about slaves. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Colossians 3, 22. Paul's saying, slaves, when you're serving your masters, you're serving Christ. Do it out of fear. Who do you fear? Don't fear man who destroys your body. Fear God who can destroy your body and soul in hell. When you fear God, when you reverence him, you're, gonna, you're going to want to do what he calls you to do. And so slaves here reading this in the first century are going, but Paul, my master, is this brutal guy. Or Paul, he's making me do this and I don't feel like doing it. Should I fight back? Should I try to want, run away? Should I complain? Should I get bitter? I'm struggling here, Paul. And Paul says, here, this is what you're supposed to do. Fear the Lord. From the, the, from the sincerity of your heart, serve them. Don't be like, okay, he's looking. Now when he's gone, I'm going to slack off now. I'm going to take a four-hour lunch break. He's gone. He's not going to notice. No, Paul's saying you're, everything you do, do it as if Jesus is right there because he is. 
he's watching. So what's the application for us? Those of us who have jobs and bosses and those of us who are serving in the home or in the church, we're not cutting corners. We're not slacking off. We know that the Lord sees everything. So that it's an exhortation for all of us. Verses 22 and following are for all of us. Because whether you know it or not, you're a slave. Every person is a slave. And when I first put this together, I, was, I put every Christian as a slave. But actually every person in the earth, on this earth, is a slave. The Bible says you're either a slave to sin, a slave to your flesh, and a slave to Satan, or you're a slave to Jesus Christ. It's one or the other, whether you like it or not. That's what the scripture teaches. 1 Corinthians seven twenty-two: He who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Were you called to be a Christian while free? Were any of us physically unshackled and enslaved? No, then Paul says, if you were called while you were free, you are Christ's slave, doulos. It's the same Greek word used here in Colossians 3.22, slave. You are Christ's slave, Paul tells the Corinthian church. He's telling us that as well. So we're Christ's slave. And by the way, the next verse in Colossians or 1 Corinthians 1, 22, the next verse, he says, you were bought with a price. You were bought. You were bought by Jesus Christ. You were bought and purchased with his blood. He's your master, kurios. Lord means master. He has all ownership rights over you when you say, yes, I trust in you. I want to follow you. I'm yours, Lord. You're saying, I don't own myself. I'm no longer a slave to myself, my sin, selfishness, all those things are in the past life, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Lord, tell me what you want me to do. Yes, sir, I'm here, ready for battle. What is it? You want to have that humble, submissive heart to whatever he tells you in his word. You say, yes, Lord, I want to do it. And like Naaman, sometimes he's going to say, okay, go bob up and down seven times. And you're like, I don't want, well, that doesn't make sense. I don't want to do that. You submit your emotions, your inclinations, how you feel to the word of God. And you say, Lord, bring my emotions in check with your word, with your truth, because I know it's good. I know it will bless me. I know it will bring you glory. Being a slave of Christ is a badge of honor. That's how Paul viewed it. That's how Peter viewed it. James, Jude, when you look at the New Testament authors, they all call themselves slaves of Jesus Christ. Paul does it in Romans 1.1, Philippians 1.1, Titus 1.1. He tells the Galatian church, if I was still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a slave, bondservant, doulos, same Greek word, of Jesus Christ. I'm not here to please men. I'm here to please Jesus He's my master. I'm his slave. When you read in many of the newer translations, NASB and NIV and so forth, they translate it bond servant. If you look up any Greek lexicon, it will say slave. That's the first word listed. Bond servant, good. Servant, good. But servant or bond servant can give you the inclination that the loophole thing that I started off with at the beginning. Slave is a stronger term to where you have no ownership rights of your own, where you've relinquished all those to another. So that's why I think it's better to use that word, although when we use it, some say that can bring back negative connotations to the slave trade. So we don't want to use the word slave. Let's use servant or something else. But we want to, once again, read the Bible in its context and want to know what the New Testament is teaching, not our inclinations. We can say the slave trade is bad, racism is evil, that's wicked, those people deserve death and judgment, and also say I'm a slave of Christ. That's what the New Testament teaches. We can say both, I believe. So Paul says I'm a slave of Christ. James, James 1.1, 1, 1. James a slave of Christ. Peter and 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. Jude and Jude 1.1. 1, 1. And guess who they're all following when they say I am a doulos? They're following Jesus himself. Many people don't realize this. Philippians 2 7. Jesus emptied himself taking on the form of a doulos. Jesus took on the form of a slave being made in the likeness of men. They're following in Christ's footsteps. The master became a slave so that we can follow in his footsteps and submit ourselves to him. 
It's a beautiful picture. It's a, and we're not merely slaves. We're sons. We're co-heirs of eternal life. We're going to rule and reign with the king. We're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. We're going to walk on streets of gold. He's going to bless us, and we're going to inherit the kingdom. Jesus said the Father is pleased to give you everything. So we need to have that in mind as well. Who else do you want to serve? Who else would you want to please? Who else would you want to give your life to and be under the authority of them? Only Jesus Christ. So every command in Colossians 3 is following in the footsteps and the example of Jesus Christ. And if you just looked at each one, Paul is calling wives, husbands, children to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And we talked about this last week. Jesus submitted himself to his father. Jesus submitted himself to his earthly parents. Husbands, love your wives. Okay. Ephesians, Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Children, be obedient to your parents. Jesus was obedient to his earthly parents. We can go down the line. Slaves, obey your masters. Okay, Christ became a slave and obeyed his master in heaven. If you read the book of John over and over, Father, I want to do your will. Father, I've come to do your will, not my own will. Father, your will be done. Not my will, your will be done. All the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, your will be done. He's a servant. He's a slave. I'm submitting myself to you, Father. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. You want me to go to the cross? I don't feel like it. I don't want to. He's having that real temptation, that real battle, but he says your will be done. I will go forward. We follow in the footsteps of Christ when we are slaves of Christ, when we follow him. He gives us the marching orders. So in verse 24, where it says, Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Paul saying, Slaves, serve your masters. Serve them with a good heart. Why? Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All these commands are following in the footsteps of Christ. And it's all in the context of Colossians 3, where Paul says, put on the new self. Put on the new man. Remember? Put on the new clothes. Take off the old. The old clothes are selfishness, self-centeredness. My way, as I talked about, the Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. So at the end of your life, you say, I did this, I did that, and I did it my way. And Paul says, no, that's the old man talking. That's the old life. Put off those old clothes. Put on Jesus Christ. And so when you put on Christ, wives, you're going to follow in the footsteps of Christ. If you put on Christ, husbands, you're going to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and so forth. And when you put on Christ, it's not just a superficial putting on. It's deep down in your heart. If you look at Colossians 3.12, it says, And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So we saw we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Deep down within the heart, a heart of tenderness, a heart of kindness. If you look at verse 15, Colossians 3:15, let the peace of Christ rule where? In your hearts, deep down within your soul. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness where in your hearts to the Lord. See a theme, a pattern going on here? Then when you look at verse 22, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who are pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Oh, one more verse, verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Do it deep down from within your soul. The NIV says, do it with all your heart. Suke is the Greek word there in verse 23. It's where we get the word soul. Do this from deep down within your soul to where you want to do it because it's pleasing to the Lord. Not because you have to, not because 
Paul is telling you to. When the master leaves, okay, I've got to mop the floor because Paul's telling me to. No, you need the heart of Christ. Every day you need the heart of Jesus so that when the boss isn't looking or the spouse is nagging you or away or whatever and you're there, are you from your heart wanting to serve God? That's what you need to have, Paul's saying. And when Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. You need Christ's humble, gentle heart implanted into you on a daily basis. You need to beat down your body on a daily basis. You need to crucify your flesh on a daily basis. It's not like, oh, I got a new heart the day I came to Christ and now I'm good and my heart is just always inclined to do what Jesus says. No, every day your heart is doing a million and one things, wanting to go a million and one directions because you're still in your fleshly body. And until the day you die, it's a battle. So daily we need to say, Lord, I need your heart. May I take your yoke upon me. I want to learn from you. I want to learn from your word and I want to follow you. That should be our heart. So he says to do this from deep down within the soul. Do it as if Jesus is right there watching. Don't cut, co- don't cut any corners. Don't slack off. Don't complain. Paul's saying don't do that. That's why he says thankfulness over and over, right? And we talked about that. Thanksgiving, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, all say do these things with thanks. Then if you look at chapter 4, verse 2, he continues it even further. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. Every day is thanksgiving. I'm thankful for turkeys and football and pumpkin pie, but I'm thankful that every day is a time to praise him, a time to give thanks. I have to check myself constantly. Complaints are starting to rise up within me. I'm very quick to justify it. And then I have to say, no, Lord, you call me to thanksgiving. You've saved me. You love me. You sustain me. You're going to give me the kingdom. I'm going to rule and reign with you. You're going to reward me, Lord. I need to give thanks at all times. In the movie Fireproof, I don't recommend many videos, many movies, but Fireproof is one of my favorites. Now, the acting, if you've seen it, it's not the greatest, I admit, but it's a great theme. Even Flywheel, which the guys that produced, I'm forgetting their names, these movies, Facing the Giants, I don't know if that was one of them, something to do with Giants and guys playing football. Anyways, they have really good themes, and in the movie Fireproof, Kirk Cameron, his name's Caleb in the movie, I had to go back and look that up. But he's cleaning the house, and he's he's trying to win his wife back. And they're fighting, and they're going through issues, and he's he's trying to win her back. And he cleans the kitchen. And I think he cleans the house. He cleans the kitchen. He makes her coffee, and she's getting home from work, and he's anticipating it. And I think he, like, puts the last dish away, or he has the cup of coffee ready for her. And she walks in that room, and he's just thinking, she's going to be like, you're awesome, honey. Great job. Way to clean the house. He's waiting for the accolades, the thanks. He's waiting for her to say, you're amazing. And she looks over at him. She rolls her eyes and she walks right into the room, passes him by. And he's just furious. I can't believe that she doesn't see all that I did. I can't believe all this work I put into for nothing. But the question is, is it for nothing? If he does it again the next day and she does the same thing and the next day, because I think it's a 40-day challenge he ends up going on every day trying to do something different to serve her, whether or not she gives him the praise and the accolades and the thanksgiving or not, he needs to do it unto the Lord. So no matter how she treats him, at the end of the day, he has a clear conscience and can say, Lord, I'm doing this unto you. That's what Paul's getting at here in this text with wives and husbands and children and so forth. Do it unto the Lord. Do it heartily unto him. Don't do it for a response. Don't do it because they're going to give you something. Do it because the Lord is watching, because he loves you, and because he's led by example. So we're not always going to get the reactions we want, but Paul does say in verse 24 that there's a motivation. There is a motivation, and it's called rewards. 
in Scripture, it's actually a good thing to be motivated to serve the Lord knowing that he's going to reward you. And that's what it says in verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. When we live for Christ, we are in the back of our minds to be thinking about our futures with him. And I think in part because we have a lot of things, most of us compared to the rest of the world are wealthy. As I was meditating on this, like why, why isn't that as appealing to me as it should be? Speaking from myself, eternal bliss, heavenly rewards, the inheritance. I don't think like that when I'm serving, but the scripture says we should. And I think it's because our world has promised us so many things here and now that we're seeking so many things here and now that we have so much here and now. It's like the boy that opened the Christmas present the morning before Christmas and then acts like he's opening it in front of the parents and he's not really pleased and happy because he already knows what it is. He's done it before time. And in a sense, it's as if, speaking for myself again, have so much or maybe I'm clinging overly to it, things that I'm not desiring the heavenly things enough or the rewards of heaven and the inheritance aren't motivating enough for me. So I have to say, Lord, help me to get my eyes back on you and not hold on to things here too tightly, but look to the reward that's coming. And so Paul says this word knowing in verse 24. It's not gnosko, experiential knowledge. It's rather a see it, perceive it, understand. Understand that you're, that you and I are going to get a reward, that you and I are going to get an inheritance. So work heartily unto him. That's what Paul's saying here. And we need to remember that we can do everything right, as I mentioned. In your marriage, and life, at work, you can do everything perfectly. If you could be perfect, if you could follow Christ perfectly, people might still not give you the accolades and the thanksgiving and the praise. They might actually do the opposite. They might persecute you. But you need to know that God is for you. You need to know that God is pleased. And you need to know that God is going to reward you when you serve him. And just a couple more things before I close this out. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. That's Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened. I want you to see this so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? And that should be all of our prayers. Lord, I want to know all that I have in you. I want to know your power. I want to know what the inheritance is. I want that to be my motivation. I want to have hope. And if I tell you, I'll give you $100,000 if you come clean my house, am I going to have to pull your arm to do it? Am I going to have to keep calling you back like, hey, where are you? I, I said, come over at this time and clean my house. Or if other people get word of it, are they maybe going to be calling me too? Hey, can I come clean your house for that much? I used to say this at the rescue mission because I knew the guys were motivated by external things so much. I try to get them to memorize a verse just to memorize a verse, and it's like pulling teeth. I give them a month, they wouldn't even try. I'm like, if you, if you gave it a month and you tried and you still can't memorize one verse, that's okay. If you honestly tried, because some of them are like, man, I've done drugs for so many years, man. I, I, don't ha I didn't graduate high school. I can't memorize a verse. And it's like, hey, you know like 20,000 rap songs, but you can't, you memorized all those. You can't memorize 15 words. And so I told him one day, who would try to read all these books on the bookshelf if I just told you to? Like, no. What if I told you I'll give you $50,000 if you try to read all these books by the 10 months are up and you graduate? Oh, man, I would do that. I would, I would stay here. I would stay up all night. I would try to read all of those books. I would do whatever I could. The moment you bring out money and rewards, they're super motivated, right? I wouldn't have to pull their arm to read those books and say, come on, man, I'm checking in on you again. Are you, are, you, are you trying to meet the goal here? They would be willingly doing it. And I think that's what Paul's getting at in the word. I'm not trying to pull your arm here. I'm not trying to tell wives, come on, I've got to pull your arm to do what you're supposed to, and husbands and, and children and slaves. He's saying, you should understand and be blown away by who Jesus Christ is. 
You should be in awe of him, the eternal glory, that you're going to stand before him and that he's going to bless you and in, give you an inheritance for all eternity to where you see that reward and you're like, I'm ready. I'm ready to serve. Where's it going to be? What do I need to do? If we're lacking in our hearts to serve, it's because we don't see who Jesus is. We don't see all that he has in store for us. There's a haze. There's a fog. There's something blocking our vision, and that needs to be taken away. And so Paul prays, I hope that your, your eyes are enlightened, the spiritual eyes of your heart. I hope that they're opened up so that you see what I see. And if you see what I see, Paul's saying, you'll do what I'll do. You'll be able to say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. You'll be able to say for to go be with Jesus is very much better, yet to remain on the flesh. I can be more profitable to you, so I'm torn. I'm really torn because I'm so eager to get the inheritance. But if I'm still here, I'm going to serve all the more because I'm looking to that day. That should be our hearts. A couple final things. I read about Steve Jobs. When he died, he gave his inheritance to his wife. It was 5.5 million shares of Apple, 7.3% stake in Walt Disney, totaling over $12 billion. Many of us would have to work hundreds of lifetimes to get that kind of money. So you'd say, man, she's set. She got the inheritance, but that will fade away. That will come to an end. First Peter 1.4 says, your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. Imperishable, glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. I want to close with a text that really spoke to my heart this morning, and that's Matthew chapter 25. I think it has to do directly with the text that we're looking at today, and I think it should be our hearts as Christians. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 to 40. And it, this is when, when Jesus returns. This is when Jesus sets up his glorious throne. And this is what he says, Matthew 25, 34. Then the king, Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. I love that passage. Whatever you're doing, when you're serving people in the church, if you're serving in children's care, if you're setting up chairs, if you're giving a cup of cold water, if you're praying behind the scenes, if you're setting things up and no one sees you, you're serving your spouse and you feel like, what is this for? I'm serving this. I'm doing it. He sees it all. And we want to have the heart that we say, Lord, Lord, when? Like, when was I doing that? I don't remember because I was just doing it all unto you. And I just love that. And I think it's just so important to know that he sees everything, that he will reward us and that he loves us so much.